This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, third chapter, beginning in verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration... I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles as well? Yes, of Gentiles as well. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. What we have in the Bible is not so much a series of disconnected stories to learn and live by or morals to follow. What we have is one great interconnected drama. It is the story of where we are located in life, what we are meant to be and what we have become. And God's decision to enact a remedy for that and how history is going to work out in the end. It is his story, the drama of our life. Today we come to the third chapter of Romans, and we have seen in chapter 1 and 2, and now chapter 3, and frankly on into chapter 4, Paul's summary of that great story, also called the Gospel. Put briefly, it is the story of our fall and God's demonstration of his redeeming grace and love made visible and available in Jesus Christ. That is the story of the Bible. What we've already seen in chapters 1 and 2 is the great descent and dilemma of humankind. It is the movement from what we were created to be to what we have become. It is the great exchange of creation for the creator of lies for the truth. Romans 1 and 2 teaches that the most fundamental problem in the universe is that human creatures, all of us, have fallen short of the glory of God. We have turned away from God, and as a consequence, he 
has turned his face from us, our condition is sin, and the consequence of that is God's wrath. We aren't used to thinking that way, but God's wrath is a consequence of his love and of his goodness and his moral perfection and of his care for his creation. It's a consequence of all of that. I was just down at the third annual L.A. Conference on Theology, and Catholic moral theologian Eleanor Stump from Washington University in St. Louis, I go on and give all of her credentials that way because my illustration from her is fairly homey, helpful, but homey. I was just on this point. She said that uh, the son of one of her neighbors started torturing a cat in the community. She went to her neighbor and asked her what she was going to do about it, what she had said to her son to stop that. And she said her neighbor told her, well, I said to my son, if you want that cat to like you, you're going to have to stop doing that. There is a time for moral indignation and out of love for wrath. That was not it. God's wrath is a necessary and inescapable component of his goodness and love in the face of our torturous sin. So Paul in chapters 1 and 2 acts as a prosecuting attorney. He states the case. He concludes in Romans 3.9, there is none righteous, no, not one. And famously in 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's a good definition of what our greatest sin is in the 24th verse of the second chapter. Because of you, Paul writes, the name of God is blasphemed. What makes sin, sin, is not first that we hurt others and hurt one another. It is that we blaspheme the name of God. Our great sin is that we don't honor God, we don't know God, we don't reverence God, we don't worship Him. The great devotional writer A.W. Tozer put it this way, Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says or leaves unsaid about him. For this reason. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any person is not what he or she may say or do. But what he or she in his deepest heart conceives God to be light. The fact that both actively and passively our lives blaspheme the name of God is our great sin, our ultimate evil, and the great outrage of the universe itself. One of my favorite writers is Eugene Peterson. He shares somewhat at length what a shepherd's responsibility is and what the most important thing about those who gather in the name of Christ should be. 
He writes, American pastors are abandoning their posts left and right and at an alarming rate. They're not leaving their churches and getting other jobs. Congregations still pay their salaries. Their names remain on church stationery, and they continue to appear in their pulpits on Sunday, but they are abandoning their posts, their calling. The pastors of America, so charges Eugene Peterson, have metamorphosized into a company of shopkeepers. And the shops they keep are churches. They are preoccupied with shopkeepers' concerns, how to keep customers happy, how to lure customers away from their competitors down the street, how to package the goods so that the customers will lay out more money. Some of them are very good shopkeepers. They attract a lot of customers. They pull in great sums of money. I hasten to add that Eugene Peterson wasn't writing this about the Northern California context, but parts of it still apply. They develop splendid reputations, yet in, it is still shopkeeping. Religious shopkeeping, to be sure, but shopkeeping all the same. The marketing strategies of the fast food franchise occupy the waking minds of these entrepreneurs. The biblical fact is that there are no successful churches. There are instead communities of sinners gathered before God each week after week in towns and villages all over the world. The Holy Spirit gathers them and does his work in them. And in these communities of sinners, one of the sinners is called pastor and given a designated responsibility in the community. The pastor's responsibility is to keep the communities attentive to God. And at the risk of quoting too much, another commentator gives vivacity to what we are to be about this way. He observes that our great problem is that the glory of God is not honored, that the holiness of God is not reverenced, that the greatness of God is not admired, that the power of God is not praised, that the truth of God is not sought, that the wisdom of God is not esteemed, that the beauty of God is not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness not trusted, the promise is not relied upon, the commandments of God are not obeyed, the justice of God is not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved, the infinite, all-glorious creator of the universe by whom and for whom all things exist, who holds every person's life in being at every moment, is disregarded, disbelieved, disobeyed, and dishonored by everyone in the world. That is the ultimate outrage of the universe. Sin is esteeming and honoring and valuing and enjoying our creations above God. We make God marginal in our life. That is the human condition and that is our sin. Paul rehearses in these chapters, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or give thanks. 
The failure to honor God as God is put at the very center of our failure, Romans 2.5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In Romans 2.8, those who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness will receive wrath and fury. Chapter 3. Now comes the major turning point of the book. Great doors turn on small hinges. And in verse 21, we have such a hymn, a hinge. Did you hear it? It's a small conjunction, but it denotes a change of thought. It denotes a turn of direction. By the works of the law, it sets up, no flesh will be justified in the sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, if you think by your own efforts, by obeying the law, you can get yourself right with God, you can find uh, acquittance, you can be transformed, you can be justified, you can become holy, you are sadly mistaken. But now, A righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. To which the law and the prophet's testimony, the great story, the great unified story of Scripture, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Paul is saying that if anyone, anywhere, at any time, by anything in the world, is going to be made right with God, it will be made right by what God has done in Jesus Christ alone. And he alone will get the glory. So let's, for the remainder of our time, look at just one verse and unparse the treasures here of God's great reversal. Guilty, condemned sinners as we are, we are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Almost every word, almost every phrase here is a rich, revealing, robust treasure. Let's unpack them briefly together. First, God's righteousness or justification. We are freely justified or made righteous by his gift. Righteousness or justification aren't words that we commonly think about to our detriment. They sound a little bit stuffy and archaic to us. In Chariots of Fire, you may remember, the Contra character, the... uh, The secondary character tries to justify himself through his running. He says something like this, when the gun goes off, I have ten seconds to justify my existence. He is saying I have ten seconds to show myself in the world that I belong, that I should be accepted, that I should be loved. I'm going to justify myself through running. John D. Rockefeller said, one more million dollars and then I'll feel okay. In the L.A. Conference in Theology, from which I've just returned, Bruce McCormick of Princeton Seminary said, there's a continuing worry 
about what distinguishes us from other animals uh, that seems we continue to have to keep moving the bar that sometimes we say it's uh, language, the ability to make tools, some kind of reasoning capacity, and then scientists seem to try to etch away from that and we become insecure. What makes us distinctive? What is our image in which we are created to be like God? And his answer was, biblically, holiness. God says to us human creatures, be holy as I am holy. So justification, whatever it means, certainly means more than just the natural attempt to justify my existence in this world. It means that we have been made straighter, true. That we're justified, that we, as McCormick would say, are creatures that are invited to be holy as God is holy with his blazing moral purity. And this great promise of the good news is the power by which we are made holy. The only power available to us is provided by God himself. God is the remedy of our condemnation. Before we can fix our minds, our hearts, ourselves, before we can help our neighbor, before we can fix anything, we have to have our standing and access and availability before the holy God open. We need to be justified and made righteous. To be justified, Paul says, is a free gift. We are freely justified. It is unearned, unmerited. We don't deserve it. We don't get fixed before we have it. Indeed, it is the basis for our being fixed, and it is by His grace. Which is to say, at the very heart of God is this mighty impulse to unite his creatures to himself. That is the character of God. We are freely justified by grace. The text goes on and says another great word, we are redeemed. It means literally time out of bondage. When we take something and put it on the pawn keeper's shelf, it is unavailable. It is not available to be used for what it was meant for, to redeem something, is to pay the price to return it to what it is meant for. In biblical times, there was no such thing as bankruptcy. If uh, you fell, fell into debt, the only way that you could get out of it is to earn your way out. You uh, might work for another. You would become his or her slave for a season. You could be bought out of debt by a kinsman redeemer. This great text says Jesus is our solid rock, the one we stand on, the one who brings redemption, time out of bondage. Another great word here is propitiation. Propitiation means that all that we are in debt from has been removed. Evil can't be erased, it has to be absorbed. So on the cross, by his blood, Jesus Christ has propitiated. He has given a payment which is so valuable and so treasured that our debt is abolished, is placated, is pacified, is appeased, it is conciliated. Thus, propitiation involves a sacrifice of great merit. This is demonstrated. So not only is it accomplished objectively, 
it is demonstrated subjectively in a way which will melt our hearts. The Old Testament has a great story of a Moabite woman named Ruth who uh, has an Israelite family who are in the land of Moab with two robust brothers, one of whom falls in love with Ruth, Ruth and marries her, but a plague comes over the land and Ruth is left widowed. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, wants to go back to her home and Ruth turns to her and one of the beautiful passages of scripture she says uh, wherever you go I will go and your God will be my God and Naomi the widow returns with her mother-in-law Naomi to Israel and their lot is no better there the land that Naomi had owned that was in her home has been sold off in her absence and Ruth is forced to work in the field and A foreign woman, perhaps any woman, but certainly a foreign woman, is compromised in the field. And the owner of the field, Boaz, comes and looks at her and says, uh, I have told all the men to protect you and to lay hands off of you. And Ruth goes back to Naomi. It's a wonderful story. I know many of you know it. And tells her of Boaz. And Naomi says, well, he's of my blood. He is a kinsman. And Ruth does a bold thing. She goes into Boaz's bedroom and stands at the foot of his bed and he wakes up and is astonished to to see her there and says, what are you doing here? And she says, lay your garment over me. Be my kinsman redeemer and love me and marry me. And Boaz works through his astonishment and says, I will. I will lay my garment over you, and he marries her and redeems her and loves her. What would happen if we stood before the living Lord Jesus Christ and said, Lay your garment over me and be my kinsman redeemer and unite my life to yours and love me and restore me and redeem me? His answer is, I will. Though it will cost me everything. My answer is yes. We are redeemed freely by the grace of Christ, by faith, through faith. I don't have time to go, but we are, it is accepted by faith. There's an interesting conversation these days whether or not some of the phrases that talk about faith in Christ, and this is one of them, should be translated the faith of Christ, which would mean we are not saved so much by our attachment, but by the faithfulness of Christ himself. And of course, the answer is both of those are true. By faith, we attach ourselves to him. He won't just pardon our debt and cover us. He will unite with us and take our life into his, and all that is his will become ours. So what we've seen here in this Pauline recapitulation of the story of Scripture is a great descent and ascent. It is a descent to our life to carry us up to where God is, but it's not just a you. The story of Scripture is more like the Nike symbol. It's sacrifice and surplus. We are restored far beyond what we could possibly imagine. We are worse off than we could possibly think. And we are restored higher than we could possibly imagine without Christ.
Again, at the L.A. Conference in Theology, from which I've just returned, there was a uh, story told about John Chrysostom. I've looked for it uh, in my internet searching anyway and couldn't find it. But here's uh, my retelling of what Ben Myers from Australia, who was one of the presenters, shared in from a Chrysostom sermon, the golden-tongued orator John Chrysostom. It illustrates pretty much this great this point, sacrifice and surplus. He said Chrysostom told a story, told a parable of a man who fell in debt and owed 10,000 talents, which he had no possibility of repaying, and he was put in prison. He had no resources, no availability. He had no possibility on his own of being delivered and a king, the king, heard of his plight and came to the prison and paid the 10,000 talents for which he would be eternally and infinitely in his debt. It was a wonderful good news, but the story didn't stop there. Christensen said he took the former prisoner and took him to his family and took him to his palace and arranged a uh, suite of rooms for him and invited him to be a regular participant, he and his family, at his banquet table. That's the gospel. And the great invitation, my prayer for you and for me, is that this plot, this way of understanding the world, might imprint itself into our minds. Descent an ascent farther than we could possibly have imagined without Christ, so that all the world, all our days, all our thinking and serving might be imprinted and impelled by that great vision and that great story. Father, we thank you that you have demonstrated through the redemption and propitiation of the cross of Jesus Christ that you can be both just and justifier of those who believe. We ask that you would help the cross of Jesus Christ to be smack in the middle of our hearts and our consciousness and our feelings. Let it liberate us from our false masters. Let it liberate us from guilt and sin. And let it draw us close to you, now and forevermore. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.